morning. Merry Christmas. Welcome to everyone here this morning and those with us online. It is a joy to spend this time together, to sing these songs, to hear the word, and to come to it together now. Christmas is one of those seasons that brings out a lot in us. In fact, there are some very famous Christmas poems that come to mind. Maybe you know these words. "'Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse." Or maybe you know these and, and, and recently read them or, or heard them in, in watching a, a video or a movie of this. And he puzzled three hours till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, didn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas perhaps means a little bit more. Even the well-known and well-loved O Holy Night was originally a poem from a French poet written in the mid-1800s. This season inspires art and beauty and hope and poetry. The passage that we're coming to this morning is a poem. It's a poem written by probably the best poet. I'll go out on a limb and say that. And it is to inspire and to encourage with its art, its beauty, and its hope. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to this poem for us this Christmas Sunday in Isaiah chapter 43. I'm getting a lot of feedback up here. Is that me or do you hear it? Okay, well, I'm getting a lot, so I'm not sure what's going on. Okay, thank you. As you're turning there, uh, we are going to uh, consider a, a poem here, a poem that's going to hopefully bring us some cr- and tremendous encouragement. Isaiah 43, starting at verse 1. But, thus, but now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God, we come to your word and we pray that it would bring a timely and needed encouragement to our hearts as we see here your character, your nature, your words, your promises, your hope on these pages, on these words. God, we ask that you would help us and encourage us and strengthen us as we consider it. So be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. It's getting worse, the the feedback up here. Okay. 
Well, as I've said, this is a poem. A poem written by God for His people. A very fascinating poem, one that has a, an interesting structure from verses 1 through 7. They, they sort of mirror back to each other to reinforce what God is saying. So you would say verses 1 and 7 are mirror thoughts. Verses 2 and verses 5 and 6 are mirror thoughts. And verses 3 and 4 are mirror thoughts. So that as the poem goes on, it's, it's mirroring back to us what God is saying, reinforcing what it is that God wants to encourage us with. And what is it that we are to be encouraged with this Christmas as we consider this poem? What is it that we are to hear? Well, my hope is that that you come to see in this poem, things can be life-changingly profound in the simplest of words. There are three huge encouragements that we are receiving from this poem. The first is this. God says, you are mine. You are mine. The God of the universe, the God who spoke things into existence, is saying, you, you, the redeemed, you who are in Christ, you are his. The second encouragement that I hope we get from this poem is that not only that we see that, that God is saying, you are mine, God is also saying, I am with you. I am with you in all that you go through, in everything that you wrestle with right now. I am with you. And then thirdly, my hope is that we are encouraged with what God says. Not only are you his, not only is he with you, but God says, I love you. Profound. Simple words, but oh so profound. And my hope for us is that it would be a timely encouragement this day. So let's consider verse, first one, you are mine. A Christmas encouragement for us today. You are mine, God says. Let's look at verse 1 and 7. Verse 1, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And then verse 7, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. This poem starts off by saying something very profound to us, that we are not our own, that we belong to God. God made us. And not only did he make us, but to his people, he redeemed us. He rescued and redeemed. But, but there's something very important here that's being conveyed to us with, with art and poetry, and it's moving in its picture, is that, that we, his redeemed people, are carefully made, that we're carefully made. The poem uses creation language to convey the level of care and attention God has given to his people. It makes us think back to creation, to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. God brought forth all that is from nothing. He did so with sovereign, purposeful power, and, and he spoke it into existence. It's amazing. Creation is amazing. We look around and we wonder at it. Even greater attention 
to detail. Even greater craftsmanship, God has made a people for himself. You are mine, he says. There's a word that was in both verse 1 and verse 7 that's important for us. It's the word for formed. That word is important. One scholar and commentator brought it out and said, formed is more intimate, indicating painstaking care whereby every circumstance of life is weighed and measured to give exactly the right pressure of the potter's hand so that the finished vessel will match his specifications. God looks at his redeemed people like a master craftsman looks at his creation. He looks at them with great delight and and wonder. It is the redeemed people of God that display his art, his craftsmanship, his beauty. And God bestows all of that craftsmanship and art and beauty on his redeemed people. Carefully made. You, who are in Christ, you are carefully made with great craftsmanship. And not only are you carefully made, but we also find that God has the naming rights. So that that very dignity that he has made you with is, is carried on with you. Named you. He paid the highest cost for those naming rights. In verse 1, the word redeemed. He paid the highest cost to have those naming rights. And no one else can top that price. Here's some point. You all, we all still call it the garden. No one says TD. No one. No one says, not even people who work for TD. They just say, I'm going to go to the garden to catch a Celtics game. They paid the price to sort of butt their way in, but we all just say it's the garden. No one can get in on your naming rights. God paid the cost. He paid it in full, and he paid the highest price. And he names you. He names you mine. Nothing can come along to dislodge that. No one has enough resources to outpay God. Mine. You are. Nothing else determines your dignity. Nothing in our culture, no level of acceptance from whatever various peer group you hope to gain that kind of acceptance, no comfort, no accomplishment, nothing can give to you the dignity that God does when he says, mine. And he paid the cost for that. And he paid it in full. And you know what God does? He turns around and he boasts that you are his. He boasts. This poem is God boasting that you, the redeemed, are his. Because God is paying the cost, you belong to him. And he emphatically delights that you are his. Now, this counters two two struggles that we toggle between. The thought that we are God's, that he looks at us and says, mine. It counters two things that we struggle with. One is our super individualistic independence. We don't want to be anyone's mine. <laughs> we are our own. I'm the captain of my ship, and God can stay if he fits in. 
Otherwise, get off. We all have that sense of independence in us, this individualistic thinking. And, and so we feel a little unsettled that we don't belong to ourselves, that we belong to God. And then we toggle and we swing to the other side of that. And we, we could feel in the same breath our isolation, where we would sit there and say to ourselves, we don't think anyone ever would say that about us. No one ever would care for us like God is saying he cares for us when he says, you are mine. And so we swing from rugged independence to isolation and weariness and feeling alone. And the antidote to both of those struggles is to see here in God's word the revealing of his nature and his character and his purpose. And when he delights in you, he, the God of the cosmos over everything, heaven and earth and everything in between, says you are his. Literally, it says Mine you are. The emphasis placed on this, act, this action and this possession, this joy, this delight that God has. Mine you are. That's the personal affectionate relationship God is saying he has with his people. Oh, that's some seriously Merry Christmas right there. In a world that makes us feel all sorts of pressures, struggles, the impulse to be individualistic or the, the sinking despair, feeling isolated and alone, we need to hear this. We need to hear that God put this in poetry for us. Second encouragement that I hope we have this morning is not only that we hear God say, you are mine, but we also hear him say, I am with you. Let's look at verses 2 and then the mirror verses 5 and 6. Verses 2 and then 5 and 6. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. And then five and six, fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. I am with you. And the emphasis here is in whatever, wherever. God is saying, I am with you in whatever it is that you face in this life, wherever it is you face these things in life. I am with you. I'm with you right now. I'm with you wherever you end up. And whatever it is that you end up in. And as we consider what's being said here, there are some allusions or some things that are being pointed to in these verses Verse 2 is referencing being taken off in exile. They're about to experience the loss of everything that they've ever known. They're going to lose loved ones. They're going to lose their land. They're going to lose what they felt like was God's promise on them. They're going to lose it all and go off into exile. And then verses 5 and 6 are referencing the gathering of God's people, Ultimately, by means of the gospel culminating in Jesus' second advent, he's going to bring everybody home. And so while sin and suffering and sorrows may scatter us about, 
God is saying, I am with you in the scattering, and I'm going to gather you up, and I'm going to bring you all home. Even if it feels like life is nothing but a scattering, I am with you. And promising his presence in exile and in hardship, and promising his presence in all that the picture of restoration gives us, we see that God is stressing his commitment to be with us. To be with us. You are not alone. You have an anchor in the storm of life. Did the visual go through your head being in stormy waters, overwhelmed by the wind and the waves, sinking, drowning? God is saying, you'll be in those storms, but I will be with you. You will not drown. Or the picture and the imagery of fire being in something so intense, so burning, but yet not being consumed. Why? Why can we be in those storms and not drown? Why can we be in fire and not be consumed by it? Because God is with us. It doesn't mean that life will be easy. It won't be. It doesn't mean comfort is the goal. It can't be. It means that no matter what, those who are God's will be safe because He will be with them all the way through, whatever it is, wherever it goes. He is saying, I will be with you. Now, we certainly celebrate that dynamic at this time of the year. It's easy to catapult our thoughts and our affections to the advent of Christ, to his incarnation, which displays the level of God's promise that he's making in this poem. It displays to us how serious God is about being with us. He entered all the way down into our humanity. John 1.14 says he literally moved into the neighborhood, as one paraphrase puts it. But John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. With us. God is with us. So with us that the second person of the Trinity took on our humanity and entered into our broken world because God is with us. And that we also see announced in Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. Consider these words, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He entered into our humanity to do what we couldn't, taking on the penalty of sin, paying it in full, and giving to us all that is required, and giving that to us in full measure. He is with us. 
with us to rescue us, with us to redeem us, with us to restore us, with us to strengthen us and to sustain us, to be with us. He doesn't stop being with us. Even if water around you feels like it's raging and the fire in your life feels like it's in an inferno, He hasn't stopped being with us. And the one who entered all the way down into our mess, into our humanity, into our world, is saying, I am with you, and you can come with me and come to me and get what you need for all the things that you are facing in your life right now. I love Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. What a timely encouragement to see the ongoing I'm with you care from our God. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. And, and he doesn't look down on us at that point and say, you Filthy rats, get away from me with your filth. No, he says, let us then with confidence draw near. Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The level of his I am with you hasn't leveled off it keeps being true I am with you he says hopefully our hearts are encouraged to think through this that we don't belong to ourselves we belong to God he paid the ultimate cost for that and we see that we are not alone that God is indeed with us he's entered into our humanity our our brokenness our our sorrow, and he is overcome, and he says, I have grace and mercy for you in full measure. I am with you. And then he says, all of this, that you are mine, that I am with you, is because I love you. That's staggering. I don't mean that in the sort of soupy Hallmark movie version, I love you. I mean that in the, the depth and width and breadth of divine love. God loves you. And he loves you at whatever cost. At whatever cost to him. These verses show that God will go to the ends of the earth and pay all the costs associated with rescuing and redeeming. Look at verses 3 and 4. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I, gave, I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. He will pay whatever cost. He will pay it all, because he loves you. He does that because of how he feels about you. How God 
feels about you. We're often our own worst critic. We know all of our shortcomings, sins. We know the backstories. We know all of it. We, we know the deep down stuff that we push down in there and we lock it and we turn off the light and we try to bury it and we try to hide it from everybody. We know it all, right? You, we know us. God knows you even better <laughs> than you know you. God knows your thoughts even more clearly than you know your thoughts. He knows your history with precision. He knows everything about you. Does that make you feel uncomfortable? In a way, it should. <laughs> In a way, it should. And what does he say? I call you precious and honored, and I love you. I mean, you can't hide any of that stuff from God. You know that, right? Nobody in here is trying to do that, right? You're not trying to hide any of these things from God. Your life is open, wide open, clear view. And he spoke into existence galaxies of stars. I think he knows what's going on in your heart, your mind, your life. And he says, precious, honored, and I love you. All those precious, honored, and love you. That little run is in, they're all in verb forms that are rooted in past actions that have forever, future, ongoing implications that bring then present comfort to our restless, weary hearts and lives. It's rooted in the past, it lasts forever, and it brings comfort to our lives right now. Why? This is why I want to direct your attention. God is unchanging in his nature, character, purposes, and promises. That might not seem like that big of a deal, but it is significant. That might not seem like a hugely important theological doctrine to understand but God being unchanging is vastly far more significant than we realize. So if God says, I love you, he means it always at whatever cost. You and I, we experience change in our lives. We experience change in our relationships. We experience change, and sometimes that change is breaking. It's a, something breaks as a result of change. You and I, we know things that change over time, and they lose their value. They, they, they become less significant and less important. We care about these things less over time. And, and we know that. We know that experience. Whether we've done that to others or others have done that to us, so God, being unchanging in his nature, character, purposes, and promises, unchanging in what he says, unchanging in his delights, unchanging in his affections, means when he says, I love you, it means he loves you. Period. Always. And. Forever. No matter how wayward you go, no matter how weak and wobbly you may be, Maybe somebody in here needs to hear that this morning. 
God loves you. That brings stability and strength to our lives. In fact, the stability and strength and the sweetness of the Christian life is not tied to our circumstances, not tied to our cultural relevance, not tied to our political cash that we might have. The stability and strength and sweetness of the Christian life is tethered to the nature and character of our triune God who does not ever change. Ever. And he says, I love you. Staggering. Wonderful encouragement when you feel very unlovely or if you feel unloved. I love you, God says. He says that if we're in Exodus. He says that if we're in exile. He says that in the storms of life or the fires of challenges. He says that, and he says it with the fulfillment of such lofty love. If you want to call his bluff, if you will, then look then no further than the cross. If you think God is bluffing or lying or going to change, look no further than the cross. The incarnation leads to the crucifixion, and the crucifixion is the greatest display of God's I love you. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, while we were in the muck and mire of our sin, not after we got ourselves cleaned up a little bit better. No, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Later in Romans, bringing that together in Romans 8 verses 3 and 4, look at what Jesus does in his incarnation that leads to that crucifixion. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. The level and magnitude of God's I love you is on the brightest display in the person and work of Jesus Christ whom we celebrate this incarnation, but this incarnation came with a purpose that led to crucifixion. And in that crucifixion, we find that everything was paid in full because along comes the resurrection. Sin, death, Satan have no power over Christ. None. Christ has redeemed us. Redeemed us from the curse of the law, redeemed us from the penalty of sin, redeemed us from the clutches of Satan and hell. Christ has redeemed why? Because God doesn't change. He loves you. But my hope is that you're encouraged. And that we go back to verse 1 of Isaiah 43. Fear not, friends. Whatever storm or fire you feel like you're in, Whatever sense of emptiness or isolation you feel like you struggle with, fear not, for I have redeemed you. Again, our fears are disarmed, our hearts are encouraged, our lives are strengthened when our hearts rehearse. God says, I am His. God says, He is with me. And God says, 
He loves me. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it brings to us timely encouragement in the moments and seasons of life in which we feel unlovely or unloved, or where we feel we're struggling and sinking under overwhelming circumstances. We feel isolated and alone and weak. Or maybe we just feel just a, a, a level of emptiness, that something is missing. So God, I pray that you would just, again, direct our hearts back to your word, where you put on display your nature, your character, your worth, your works, promises, and that we would be deeply and truly, greatly encouraged by what we find. You are God over everything. Galaxies, stars, planets. Yet you look at us and you say, Mine, I'm with you, and I love you. May that never grow old in our hearts. May that be fresh each day, bringing us courage to live out our life following you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Please stand as we sing. Some captain.